Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free HealthMate app. With tools at hand such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Austin sits down with Dan Kaserling, Chief Operating Officer of Jigsaw, a unit of Google's Alphabet company that uses technology to make the world a safer place. Jigsaw identifies disinformation campaigns online and works to prevent censorship, extremist group recruiting, cyber attacks, and more. On this episode, Austin and Dan dive deep into the topic of fake news, what it is and what it isn't how Jigsaw is trying to dissect and understand disinformation campaigns online, and how they are building solutions to this global problem. Dan, thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today. I wanted to chat with you about Jigsaw, about the work that you're doing, and particularly as it pertains to fake news. But before we get there, let's start with an introduction of yourself. Tell me your name, your title, and how you came to be in your position at Jigsaw. Sure. Uh, Well, thanks very much for having me. My name is Dan Kaiserling. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Jigsaw. I've worked at Jigsaw and its predecessor organization, Google Ideas, for the last nine and a half years in a variety of roles, but uh, most recently as COO. I very often have to describe Jigsaw and what it does in a few sentences. We are a unit within Alphabet that uses technology to make the world safer. We're a group of researchers, technologists, engineers, and a variety of other sort of interdisciplinary capabilities that uh, tackle some of the toughest problems facing technology in the world. Everything from censorship to extremist group recruiting to harassment online to cyber attacks and more. So you're covering a wide range of social and technological issues, addressing them with technology. What we want to talk about specifically is the issue of fake news. And to solve a problem, I'm sure you have to get intimately familiar with the problem before addressing it with technology. Tell me about fake news as you understand it. What is the problem of fake news? Well, I'll go even sort of broader than that, which is even just to kind of question the language that we use to talk about this problem. You're using a phrase, fake news, that has a lot of connotations to a lot of people who hear it. Uh, And I, I think part of our effort is to have a shared public conversation around some of the challenges around information in general that we're facing across the internet. So, so let's, let's unpack that phrase a little bit because Oftentimes, what we're talking about when we talk about disinformation or influence operations is neither news nor entirely fake, but we can, we can unpack all of that. The first thing I'd say is just that one of the trends that Jigsaw has been observing as it observes conflict on the internet and the role that technology plays in conflict all around the world is that information is increasingly becoming part of how nations wage war and part of how they engage in conflict, both state and non-state actors all around the world. So we, the United States observed that in pretty vivid terms in 2016. We've since been talking about it uh, in the case of, you know, quote unquote, Russian meddling in the American election. But this problem is really global. And we've observed it everywhere from Venezuela to Ukraine to all across Europe. Pretty much everywhere you can look where governments have an interest in what people think about issues, there are efforts to manipulate the information environment. So we can talk a little bit more about sort of specific examples and and the more nefarious examples that we've observed. But I want to talk about sort of how we approach understanding the problem and why that understanding is important for um, building solutions. Really what Jigsaw has been doing is trying to understand the the architecture of disinformation around the world. So how does an influence operation work? 
How do governments use disinformation to advance their objectives? And that's about understanding sort of the methodology that certain governments use to engage in disinformation operations. That's things like identifying wedge issues, controversial issues in certain environments, issues that are likely to stoke division, fear, particular political views. It's about building a strong online presence. So sometimes that's the acquisition of fake accounts. Sometimes you hear people talk about bots and bot armies, sort of zombie armies of fake accounts that people can control centrally. That's another key component of disinformation tactics. It's about building credible personas online from some of these fake accounts. So establishing people's bona fides, you know, so that they don't seem fake, so that they seem real and that they even seem to be a part of some community that they're trying to manipulate. And then it's about the coordination of disseminating that information. So there's a lot in there. And part of understanding this problem means understanding the specific architecture so that you can detect when this is occurring. So for example, one of the features of disinformation campaigns around the world is coordinated, inauthentic activity. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have 10,000 accounts on some social media platform all saying roughly the same thing, all at roughly the same time, all directed at a specific target. Very often, that's not because 10,000 people had the same idea at the exact same time. It is manipulated. It's coordinated and inauthentic. There's some central force that is controlling not only what they say, but when they say it and to whom they direct that communication. So, The reason why we study that and we try to understand coordinated and authentic behavior is to try to detect it at scale. And um, there are certain signals that can signify that behavior is inauthentic. I think for all of the platforms that are thinking about ways to address this issue, detecting that inauthentic activity is, is really one of the sort of core pillars of it. Because this specifically does not get into a question of whether the information that they're sending is valid or whether it's true. It's really a statement on how people are using platforms in a way that they weren't designed to be used. Therein lies a huge part of the problem, if I understand it. A lot of this is driven by behavior and it's, it's more of a sociological issue. But Jigsaw aims to solve a lot of this with technology. Is that correct? Technology is absolutely one part of the equation, but it's not the only component piece. And that's really why we designed Jigsaw the way that we did as an interdisciplinary team, a team that combines research with analysis, expertise, people who have experience working in government, um, working in NGOs, working in the private sector, uh, because any of these problems are so multifaceted, the solutions will necessarily be multifaceted too. So technology is definitely one part, but as you rightly point out, we also have to address this issue in our culture and the culture of information online, how information moves around and how we share information. Part of our motivation in exploring this space in general is to really contribute to a shared public conversation around what disinformation is, how it works, Um, how governments use it to advance their objectives, and how people can be more thoughtful consumers of information online. So I've, I've got a whole list of questions in front of me, and many of them are about addressing what is the problem. But I actually want to jump ahead. Let's assume that we have a decent grasp on the problem itself, at least at a high level, that this is misinformation, that it is deliberate, that it is the spread of, of inauthentic opinions and views for the purpose of sowing chaos or division. Is that a fair evaluation? Not exactly. I'll quibble with one part of it, which is when I describe coordinated, inauthentic activity online, I'm not referring to the content of the message. I'm referring to the fact that those accounts, in many cases, are fake. Um, they're not real people, and they're not, they're not um, behaving organically or according to their own interests. What you're really talking about is big armies of fake accounts online. And the reason why that's a problem is, um, as you rightly point out, that you can very easily create the sensation of hundreds, thousands, even tens of thousands of people having a particular opinion or, as we've observed all around the world, attacking an individual 
journalists are often susceptible to this, especially in places that do not have strong protections for free speech. Uh, We've seen a growing trend where governments are coordinating or at least permitting sort of organized harassment campaigns that often use these armies of fake accounts uh, to target individuals who say things that they don't like. So the inauthenticity that I think is really important to point out and that that we can definitively identify is around fake accounts and not necessarily making a judgment on the information that's being shared itself. Okay, important distinction and probably not one I uh, articulated before. Let's talk about the solutions. Uh, Let's talk about the work that you're doing at Jigsaw not just understanding the problem, but trying to deploy some kind of answer to it. What are the things that people need to have in mind, whether it's Jigsaw, whether it's a sovereign government, whatever group is trying to address this, what are the things they need to have in mind when they're approaching this problem, trying to find solutions? That's a tricky question to answer um, because we are we are still in the process of confronting these issues and trying to design solutions that not only address the issue, but are durable and will evolve as as we evolve and as the internet evolves and as the way that we share information evolves. So we don't want to design a solution that works for the problem that we had a year ago, but that immediately becomes obsolete because the pace of change and innovation on the internet is just so high. But I can, I can talk a little bit about how we th- sort of think about segmenting the different areas that we want to approach with solutions in mind. One of them is um, synthetic media. So, you know, you mentioned the term fake news earlier. Um, One of the most sort of faithful fake news problems is around uh, synthetic media. So that's, that's synthetic, artificially created or manipulated images, audio, and video. We have observed this as sort of a growing ingredient to disinformation campaigns around the world. Um, You've probably heard the term deep fakes, which refers to a specific kind of synthetic video that uses artificial intelligence to generate fake stuff. But but to be honest, the problem is um, often even cruder than that, uh, where uh, there was a recent example where somebody slowed a video down of, of Nancy Pelosi speaking to make her seem like she was intoxicated. That kind of crude, very simple manipulation of media is much more common uh, than the sort of dystopian, um, super sophisticated techniques that researchers talk about. Um, But we should be prepared for the full spectrum of these issues because it's becoming easier to manipulate different media and our news cycle is getting even faster. So it's it's more important than ever that we build um, things that can help journalists and platforms detect when media has been manipulated. There are lots of different ways to do that. There are lots of different signals to look for and different sort of purposes for using those kinds of tools. But that's one area where we've invested a lot of research and product development. I'm not going to tell you what we're doing in the space, but you can have me back in uh, maybe a couple of months or a year and I'll be much more forthcoming. The other thing that we're really looking to do is really try to understand this problem holistically and articulate how disinformation really works in the world. Uh, We've seen sort of the explosion of this tactic of governments incorporating sort of the weaponization of information into statecraft and espionage and influence operations. I would wager that the world really doesn't quite understand it yet. And we're still discovering new instances of it. And I think it's well worth taking the time and making sure that we create a really rigorous thorough understanding of what this problem looks like all around the world, how it works, the architecture of influence operations, and go a bit deeper than describing the problem with such a broad term as fake news. Uh, It's actually a much more nuanced issue. It touches on a lot of different platforms and aspects of our culture and how we consume information, how we communicate, how we share things. Um, So taking the time to really develop Um, a comprehensive understanding of how disinformation works around the world. And that means understanding at a technical level how it works. And it also means developing sort of case studies that exemplify how different governments have used these tactics in the past and what solutions have been effective in each case. 
you bring up a good point that this is not a stationary target. It's constantly evolving. Uh, this is an issue that came to the American public mind mostly in 2016. It's not something I think most people were thinking about prior to that. How has the landscape changed since 2016? Well, I think you're right that we no longer have to explain what we mean when we say disinformation. Um, I don't think we have to spend as much time convincing people that this is a real problem. As we've traveled around the world and met with, um, for example, political candidates, they are all thinking about this issue. They are all dealing with this problem of people spreading things that are either fake or manipulated or are designed to sort of sow divisions among groups. There, We have seen all over the world um, countries interfering in other countries' electoral processes and political processes. So you see that kind of trend pr proliferating all around the world. We have also observed these services available for hire. As governments sort of develop these capabilities, naturally, a lot more people know how to do this kind of work. It's not only governments who are interested in using these tactics um, to affect the information environment somewhere. And so, you know, we've seen you can buy pretty much off the shelf a disinformation campaign on the dark web um, for less money than you might think. So the, the threat is evolving. I think also you're seeing a lot of different sectors come together and recognize that there's a shared responsibility for doing something about this and that different sectors, the public sector, private sector, technology industry, uh, and really the news industry all have their own roles to play. And so I think part of, part of the journey along both understanding the threats and developing solutions is making sure that we have this conversation publicly and that we, we talk about um, how we're thinking about confronting these threats so that we share the information uh, across sectors of, of what best practices are and what we're learning, but that also that we reckon with this issue as a society and that we, we have that conversation out in the open. At, at Jigsaw, I imagine you have access to an enormous amount of data and information that may not be totally available otherwise. What have you found by looking into the data that wouldn't be clear to somebody who's generally acquainted with the subject but wouldn't have access to that data? What surprises have shown themselves there? You know, I think it is much less having access to data than it is understanding um, what to look for in, in information that is kind of widely available. So the advantage that we have at Jigsaw is that we have a lot of people who really deeply understand how this technology works. Uh, so when we encounter, for example, a, a suspected influence operation somewhere in the world, some government is manipulating some other government to do something or some other group, we can look at that and apply a technical lens to that and really try to understand the architecture of that particular operation. Um, we have a lot of experience sort of evaluating a bunch of disparate threads or seemingly disparate threads and synthesizing them into sort of one cohesive picture of what's going on. You're right that we have like a certain amount of computational power. We can look at a bunch of different data points and, um, and see the connections between them. Um, but I, I, I would challenge the sort of premise of your question a tiny bit and just say that I, I actually think that the key here is not having access to huge amounts of data. You don't need that because this, this issue is playing out right before our eyes. This is happening on social media platforms. This is happening through traditional media. Uh, and it's happening person to person. Uh, information being passed over chat apps between individuals uh, just from cell phone to cell phone. So the trick is knowing where to look um, rather than being able to look everywhere. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm going to I'm going to play dumb a little bit. So this is a problem that is playing out in the open, right? Anybody can see these bots operating, but to a user, it's not clear that they are bots or it's not clear that they are inauthentic. Um, and, and the scale and the coordination may be opaque as well, may not be totally uh, clear to see. Assuming that you have tools to identify those things, what broad steps could or should, what kinds of measures might be engineered that could help create a more healthy environment for an audience that may not be incredibly media literate or, or aware that this kind of thing is, is happening to the scale that it is? 
You you bring up a really important point, which is very often the targets of coordinated harassment, for example, do not know that the 10,000 people who are calling them names are not real. A dear friend of mine is a journalist working in the U.S. and was subjected to uh, some years ago a coordinated harassment campaign on social media. And for weeks, this person thought that they were the subject of the of 10,000 people who really hated them and really hated everything they said. And they were they were really marveling at how consistently everyone hated the same things about them. Uh, and when they found out that actually some huge percentage of of those tens, seemingly, you know, tens of thousands of people aren't real, uh, it really changed their outlook on social media and and just calibrating against public opinion. A lot has changed over the last couple of years, and I think people are, are much more knowledgeable about how that works. But you're right to point out that central problem that the reason why coordinated, inauthentic mobs of activity on the internet are a problem is because people often mistake them for organic activity on the internet. And the way that our society works is uh, movements on the internet can have real tangible effect. Uh, They can have political effect, they can have economic effect, and they can certainly have a personal effect on people, Um, especially as people live more of their lives online. um, People can be really deeply affected by this. In the case of journalists, for example, I'll, I'll go back to the journalist example. If you're a journalist working in a place that does not have strong protections for free speech, and you have a coordinated mob of people harassing you online, that's a matter of life and death. Uh, And that can have really serious consequences. We've spoken to people who've had to flee where they live uh, permanently because they were the targets of of coordinated online mobs that were organized by the government. From our point of view, you know, this is is not something that one tech tech platform is going to solve by by itself. Uh, This is going to require the technology industry sort of coming together, sharing information about this and and staying one step ahead of the threat on their platforms and making sure that they're making decisions that are responsible for their users. I know, I mean, I can only speak for myself and for Jigsaw, but this is a hot topic of conversation all across Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Uh, all the platforms are thinking about it. Uh, and we're, we're sharing the information that we have with other platforms so that um, we're all working from the same set of information. What does that look like as you're sharing information across platforms and companies? Uh, what's the interface like there? Is there a framework for fluidly addressing these across those platforms? There are systems, depending on what kind of content, there, there are really rigid systems, for example, for sharing um, terrorist content or violent extremist content. Um, there are really rigid systems for, uh, or well, well-practiced systems for sharing um, child abuse content. Uh, disinformation, this is sort of a growing and emerging field. Um, we very frequently share information with other tech platforms and, and have conversations with them about how they're thinking about the issue, how we can share information to be helpful with each other. We're all facing this problem. This is a societal problem. This is not at all a competitive issue among tech companies. We have, Jigsaw has frequently shared leads um, from when we detect an influence operation that is also present on other platforms. We'll share that information with with those platforms. Uh, And very often they take the steps um, that they want to do, whether it's taking down uh, accounts that violate their terms of service or, or just learning a little bit more about how these operations work. Is there a way or, or a, a line of productive work that might get the tech firms, and frankly, all of us who are embroiled in this, ahead of misinformation uh, propagandists? Or, or is this going to be an ongoing cat and mouse back and forth? It's a question we ask ourselves often. I think that the, the struggle around control over information in general is pretty enduring. Uh, and I think it, it predates the internet, certainly, but it, it predates technology in general. 
I wish I had better news, but I think that this will be a constant ongoing struggle as the ways that we consume and share information continue to change in, frankly, amazing and dazzling and really useful ways. Um, We obviously need to confront the risks and the downsides in all of that. In some ways, I hope it will be an ongoing conversation because the technology that informs how we continue to have access to the world's information continues to change in amazing ways. And we ought to constantly have the conversation of how we can make ourselves safer in that context, how we can be responsible about how we share information and how we can make sure that people have all the information that they need to make smart choices in their lives. This sounds like a topic that isn't going to have a a quote unquote solution, a final, we fixed it, it's done. I think that's a fair characterization. Yeah, I I don't think that there's just going to be an app for that one day. Uh, I think uh, this is, you know, technology is an incredible transformative force and um, it should always be accompanied by a serious conversation about how it's affecting our society and how we can do more to make people safer, freer and uh, better able to do what they want to do in society. So with that said, uh, what can platforms do? What can technology firms do to foster an environment mm-hmm. of more healthy dialogue? Obviously, there, there are lo- lots of different parties. As you said, there, there are different actors, institutions, governments, and even the end user individuals. But as it pertains to the technology firm, are there steps and measures that can be taken to foster a healthier conversation generally? I think the answer to that question is is right there in the question. It, it's a conversation. Uh, it's participating in that conversation, and it's making sure that that conversation is not only happening in Silicon Valley, and it's not only happening in Washington, D.C. or in capitals all around the world. A really strong value here at Jigsaw, and something that I think is instructive across the industry, is that we want to make sure that as many different stakeholders are are participating in those conversations as possible. So engage the academic community, engage the research community, engage the platforms, of course, engage policymakers, um, engage people who are confronting this threat on the front lines, understand how the national security community is considering this from a sort of security point of view um, and influence operations and, and security around election things are, are obviously really important. But making sure that all of the people who are looking into this have some channel to learn from everybody else who's looking into this and that we're benefiting from that sort of constellation of efforts um, that are absolutely ongoing all over the world and that we're able to draw from each other's insights. I think that's the most important thing as we're in this stage where we're really trying to reckon with the problem. And as platforms um, roll out more solutions or more technology that's designed specifically to address this particular issue, be open to a conversation with the public. Um, Have that conversation. Understand how people are interacting with these tools. Um, Is it useful? Are there ways that they could be more helpful? So that may sound like I'm sort of dodging your question, but I, I think, and I'll return to this point, that I think the most important thing is a shared public conversation with all the relevant stakeholders around these issues. How hard is it to identify when a misinformation campaign is active, is happening? That's an interesting question. I think it depends on your vantage point. If you are just rolling around the internet and you see a piece of information, it's often quite difficult to understand the provenance of that piece of information or who sent it, who made it, has anyone fact-checked it, is it real? If you are observing these things holistically uh, and from a little bit of a distance, there are effective methods for detecting these kinds of campaigns. Are there ways for systems to kind of go down the checklist, check those boxes and create greater transparency for end users? Yeah, there, there are ways for technology to make it easier to detect coordinated behavior, coordinated inauthentic behavior. Um, there are increasingly ways for technology to detect the manipulation of media. So if an image or if a video has been manipulated, there is a whole field of study of trying to identify that, to identify sort of algorithmically the signals that suggest that a piece of media has been manipulated. This is obviously a really big growing field of study. As the technology that for creating synthetic media improves, um, so too has the detection capabilities. 
Uh, and that, that's a little bit the cat and mouse game that we were talking about earlier, that you kind of have to be vigilant. You have to stay at the state of the art of, of the threat uh, to make sure that your solutions are uh, durable. It seems insane that we're already here, but we're already ramping up to another presidential election in the not terribly distant future. I imagine, as you said, this is something that's widely discussed, very important, uh, constantly top of mind. Are, are there efforts being taken specifically pertinent to that event in the United States? Yeah, I mean, there, I think that there are a couple of important points to make here. As Mr. Mueller testified in front of Congress recently, um, there are efforts to manipulate the information environment around the American presidential election as we speak. To take a slightly more global view, we've observed this trend and this particular threat to elections all over the world pretty constantly. Um, there's always an election happening somewhere. And everywhere we travel in the world, this is top of mind for not just the candidates and the parties in particular elections, but also, um, you know, from an infrastructural point of view, from societies, how, how do you you know, make laws um, with regard to election security, um, protecting not just, you know, your voting machines, but the information environment around around elections. Um, so I would expect that trend to continue in the United States, uh, more attention being paid to the sort of hard physical security of election infrastructure, but also paying close attention to influence operations. Um, and that's why it's so important to understand the architecture of these operations and, and how they work because it makes it a lot easier to spot them. And it makes it makes our society more literate when it comes to discussing them and understanding the effect that they can have on manipulating the information environment. Is there an effort or is there a responsibility for platforms, tech firms to educate their users on the presence of these malicious misinformation campaigns? Yes, I think we all have a responsibility to share what we know and talk about talk about the issue as often as we can. One of the campaigns that Jigsaw has in partnership with Google is a campaign called Protect Your Election. And Protect Your Election is a suite of free tools that defend against some of the most common forms of cyber attack, which, as it happens, increase in frequency and intensity around elections. I'm sure that comes as no surprise. Um, but Protect Your Election, in addition to being this suite of free tools, is also a campaign. We, we take this show on the road. Uh, we travel all around the U.S., but also all outside the United States, internationally from Kenya to Brazil to Germany to everywhere in between. We've been to dozens of spots and hosted trainings um, for uh, political parties, for candidates, for news organizations all around the world, um, for... NGOs and for um, election infrastructure uh, to really help them understand what some of the most common threats are uh, to security around election and um, equip them with free tools to make themselves safer. So what we've observed is that campaigns all around the world are definitely hip to this problem. Many years ago when this started, this effort started before 2016 and uh, you often had to convince people that digital threats were serious. And the events of 2016 really helped to clarify the threat, I think, in the eyes of at least an American audience, um, whether it was the hacking of John Podesta's emails, um, the dissemination of information, the coordinated dissemination of information, um, or, you know, as we really found out later, the coordinated effort by the Russian government to um, conduct an influence operation in the U.S., Campaigns are much hipper to this now. They, they understand the threat. Uh, they're taking steps to defend themselves. And I absolutely think um, we have an obligation to uh, provide them with the tools they need. Uh, and so we welcome that conversation at home and abroad. How does a new project originate at Jigsaw? What is the life cycle of an initiative or a project from its initial brought to the table, new thing that we're going to address to it's out in the world, it's working and uh, it's helping people? That's a good question, and I'll, I'll probably dodge it because the answer is there are a lot of different ways. Some of our projects originate from carefully drawn strategies and really trying to understand the threat and designing a technological approach to a really specific well-known problem. Others 
happen more opportunistically where we will be somewhere in the world or uh, one of the engineers on our team will discover some issue, some problem and say, you know, hey, folks, I I really think this is a serious issue. And they'll get together a few people who feel passionately about it. They'll start to hack together some sort of a solution or a proof of concept. uh, And that that germ of a a notion will turn into a full fledged product team. Uh, That's kind of one of the cool things about working here is that ideas come from all over the place. And um, there's a ton of autonomy and power for individual members of the team to really chase down leads and, and drive impact that way. We do try to focus our efforts because our mandate's pretty broad, making the world safer with technology. So we've chosen to focus on a couple of specific areas where we think um, the threats are significant uh, and technology plays a central role. So censorship, for example. Um, censorship is increasing around the world. Technology plays sort of a central role in that. Um, so we look at lots of different ways that technology can help defend freedom of expression, defend people's uh, ability to participate in the free and open internet. We look at protecting news organizations, especially from certain kinds of cyber attack. We look at um, helping platforms host better conversations on their site in the face of harassment and toxicity and sort of the overall chaos of the internet. We find that focusing on a couple of broad areas or disciplines provides just enough of a constraint that um, people can focus on a certain subset of ideas. Um, But ideas come from all over the place. If you had a magic wand and you could reinvent the internet today, fundamentally changing the architecture in some fashion, would there be a way to create a, a web that is more immune to misinformation, coordinated misinformation? There are a number of countries around the world who are asking themselves that very question, that if we can redesign how the internet works in some fundamental way, can we remake it in our image? And the reason why that is a complicated question is because any changes you make to this system of how people consume information or share information or communicate and connect with each other, um, there are trade-offs to those changes. And very often, the, the trade-offs for control are freedom. You know, I, I, that's a question that countries all over the world are asking themselves. Um, and it's, it's sort of a moral and a, almost a philosophical question that I think all citizens of the world have to think about when they think about what kind of internet they want and what choices they make um, and whether those choices attend to the internet that they want or, or another version of the internet. But um, there, there is a version of the internet uh, that some countries seem to prefer that puts much heavier restrictions on uh, freedom of expression and of access to information. Um, and much of what Jigsaw does is um, working to protect people from, from those forces that seek to deprive them of their ability to participate in that open internet and their ability to get the information they need. I understand that there are probably tools behind the scenes that are not yet released and and not really uh, ready to be discussed. But tell me about the tools that you have now that are released, that are public, that engage with this problem. Well, I'll give you a few that I think exemplify our values. And uh, you tell me if any of them seem interesting. The first thing that I'll talk about is Project Shield, uh, which is an effort to defend news organizations, political organizations, human rights organizations, um, from a very common form of cyber attack called a denial of service attack, a DDoS attack. And a DDoS attack is really just when you overwhelm servers with traffic and take websites offline. So that sounds like a nuisance, I think, to most of your listeners, but uh, it's also a very common form of censorship. Uh, Governments or, or anybody really can... Um, pay a few dollars on the internet and and direct huge amounts of traffic at, say, a small or a medium newspaper operating in a conflict zone and overwhelm their servers and take them offline, effectively silencing them. Now, that is not a bunch of goons breaking into an office and smashing computers, um, but it very often has the same effect. Uh, It has the same chilling effect. It deprives people of important information they need. And it's a way for governments around the world 
to engage in censorship without having to own up to it. Um, because it's often easy to deny where um, where these kinds of attacks came from. Very often, um, news organizations we've spoken to don't even know they're under attack. They um, they often assume that they're having some technical issue with their website. Um, so it's obviously a nefarious tactic. Really, no one should be vulnerable to this kind of attack. Um, so we've made Google's DDoS mitigation capabilities, which, as you might imagine, are pretty good, uh, available for free to those kinds of organizations, news, political, um, and uh, human rights groups around the world. That also sort of exemplifies a, a creative way to think about what censorship really looks like uh, in today's world. I'll give you another example in the vein of censorship. Another way that um, governments frequently take websites offline, websites where they don't like what they're saying, is through something called DNS manipulation. Uh, and that's essentially when you manipulate the phone book of the internet, the domain name system um, that connects the URL that you type in with the website that you're trying to visit. When you manipulate that connection, you can block access to certain websites. You can even manipulate content on certain websites. Uh, and we especially saw that tactic being used in Venezuela uh, when they experienced political violence uh, a few months ago. Uh, and so we built an app called Intra. Uh, it's one button. You can't miss it. And when you hit the button, you are automatically protected from that kind of attack. It, it encrypts your connection to the domain name system. So that's another example of not just an app that's really useful for anyone in that environment, but it, it helps to sort of round out a more comprehensive picture of what contemporary censorship is and, and how it works in the world. And part of what we're trying to do is really show people that there are a lot of ways that censorship persists around the world that aren't just our traditional sense of like someone going into a newspaper office and, and you know blacking out information they don't want you to see. Another cool tool that I'll tell you about um, that tackles a different issue is perspective. Perspective is an API um, that gives anybody, any publisher or platform access to our machine learning models that can spot toxicity on the internet. And um, this is really important because as I'm sure you've observed being in the media, for a long time, platforms didn't really know what to do from the issue of hosting conversations at scale. You saw a lot of platforms turning comments off, for example, because it was very hard to um, enforce whatever whatever rules and terms of service that you on your platform specifically wanted to enforce. And different platforms have different standards of what kinds of conversations um, they're okay with having on their website. The New York Times, for example, has pretty stringent standards of um, what's allowed to be published as a comment on the site. Reddit has different standards. They want to encourage a more open community where people can say um, things that wouldn't have be permitted elsewhere. Um, so that diversity, how do you build tools that help those platforms host better conversations while still respecting the broad diversity of standards. Um, and so what we did is we, we taught machine learning models to understand language, to be able to spot toxicity and uh, to provide a score actually from zero to a hundred of how likely a comment is to be perceived as toxic. And um, that data is super useful for platforms that are trying to figure out how to host better conversations. It can sort comments according to their toxicity so that moderators have an easier time doing their jobs. It can return real-time feedback to you as a commenter uh, saying, hey, you know, there's a, based on what you just typed, there's a likelihood that someone might perceive this to be toxic. And there's data to suggest that people actually tend to change how they phrase things. Uh, when they receive that kind of real-time feedback. Or there's another cool experiment that we did, a, a Chrome extension called Tune that uses perspective to allow you to use a sort of volume knob across the internet where you can decide what kind of comments you want to see based on their toxicity. So all of those tools I just mentioned are, are expressions of how to use machine learning technology to do a job, um, in this case, hosting conversations at scale, at the scale of the internet, where you have thousands, even millions of participants 
uh, machine learning can help people, the moderators, the, the hosts of these platforms do that job more effectively. For the sake of diversity, I'll, I'll mention another project that tackles a whole different issue, which is um, violent extremist groups recruiting using the internet to recruit new members. This was one of our earliest projects. Uh, when we were Google Ideas, we, we studied how violent extremist organizations uh, recruited and, how, and the role that technology played in that process. And that research eventually yielded a methodology for uh, reaching people who were vulnerable to being recruited by violent extremist organizations and providing them with alternative messages uh, that help them make the decision not to join that group. Um, that methodology is called the redirect method, and it is essentially targeted advertising. Uh, it's the same targeted advertising that occurs every day uh, on internet platforms all around the world. There's nothing secret to it or special even, um, but it's specifically designed advertising to reach people who are vulnerable to the messaging of violent extremist organizations. So um, the experiment that we ran a few years ago was around ISIS, uh, which at the time was the most sophisticated terrorist organization um, using technology to recruit new members. And um, after studying sort of the mythology that ISIS used to appeal to people who were vulnerable to being radicalized, we designed um, advertising that directed people to playlists that refuted that mythology. Um, and we used entirely found footage, authentic footage from all around the internet. We didn't make anything for this. We didn't um, produce anything. We went around the internet and we found authentic footage from inside the so-called caliphate, from Islamic scholars, from people who had spent time or who were actually citizen journalists living inside Syria or Iraq, who provided just an alternative answer to the questions that people were asking online of what's it like to live in the caliphate? How do I join ISIS? What's the interpretation of this particular scriptural passage? That's an example of us conducting research and making all of that open source, as it were. You know, we published that methodology and, and today it's being used not just for uh, Islamist violent extremism, but um, other ideologies all around the world to help um, get young people uh, out of these groups and to help thwart violent extremist groups from recruiting. I know we're short on time. I want to go back to Perspective. How long has Perspective been available publicly? About a year. We launched with the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times has been using Perspective to help its team of human moderators sort through comments on its website more effectively. And as a result of the technology, they've been able to, I think, quadruple the number of articles where they're able to offer comments. But it could be even higher than that. Is this trained on a wide level and then the same model, the same uh, machine learn learning is sent out to all admins to deploy on their platforms? Or do they train it on their own community data uh, with perspective? Great questions. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to geek out on this. Um, so we have a variety of machine learning models that are all trained on different attributes of language. And so Perspective is the name of the API that gives you access to all of those models that you can customize. So different platforms want different things from this. They have different standards that they're trying to enforce. Um, and so you can, you can go through and you can customize sort of what models best apply to your individual needs. Um, and so you can curate sort of a custom experience to help supplement the work that you are already trying to do on that platform. We do our own training. It's a supervised learning model. Um, so we very carefully observe the data sets that are being used to train these comments or train these machine learning models. And one of the um, areas of research that we pay a lot of attention to and that we have a team that specializes in here is around bias. Um, because as you know, in machine learning, um, bias is a really important topic. Human biases make their way into machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so it's really important that you equip yourself to spot those biases when they arise and you mitigate them. And so we have a team that's devoted to doing that and also conducting a lot of really leading research in this field. And 
they publish that research all the time. Perspective is meant to address the content exclusively, correct? What do you mean by that? Meaning it doesn't necessarily identify uh, coordinated action across the network. No, correct. Perspective is designed to essentially spot toxicity. Uh, most of the machine learning models are trained to recognize some form of toxicity. There's a lot of nuance within that word. And there are, we could go into more detail about the models being able to identify um, specific types of attacks, whether it's racism and misogyny, personal attacks, uh, sort of very, very severe attacks. Um, there, there's a lot of nuance and complexity within them, but the API gives platforms and publishers access to the full list of our production models that they can customize to their needs. And it's free, I should add. I think this is my final question because we are out of time. Uh, are you at liberty at this point to say anything about tools that would be able to address wide coordinated action and to make those more transparent or able to be acted upon? No. Okay. But watch that space. I will. I will. I'm super curious about it. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Very nice of you to have me. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.